0: Thank you. thank you. I have um. Thank you and Assalam alaikum. Peace be with you. There's three mics here, so I, I don't know where I'm. supposed will put this down. Um. Before I start. Um, I've I've had the great honor to go, I'd love to talk at schools, K through graduate school. And and one of the questions I ask children in America is, is I ask them, how many of you have talked in great detail to your grandparents or your elders or your forefathers about World War II or the Depression or the Vietnam War or the Civil Rights Movement or perhaps, you know, when your parents or grandparents came from another country and first settled here in America and what it was like? You know, only in America about 5 to 10% of the hands come up. If I ask that same question in Afghanistan or Pakistan or even in Africa, 90% of the hands come up. And I think it's a great tragedy in our society that we've lost that oral tradition, often that goes down from grandparents down to the grandchildren. And it's a rich tradition about folklore, about culture and heritage and faith. and, And to honor that today, I'd like to share with you a little story. The hardcover book uh, that came out in, in March of 2006, anybody have a hardcover? OK, wave it up here. OK. I mean, you might not want it after I say this, but <laughs> um, the, uh, I, I got to pick the title, Three Cups of Tea. But uh, Viking told me they would pick the subtitle. And they picked One Man Mission to Fight Terrorism One School at a Time. And, <laughs> I objected to that because obviously there are some ways you can fight terrorism with education, but I said, you know, I do this to promote peace. And I started eight years before 9-11. And really what this is all about is promoting peace through education. Well, they told me that they wouldn't change the subtitle. So I've worked in Afghanistan, Pakistan many years, and I I told them we need to have a Jirga, or tribal council. So I went to Manhattan. This was in the fall of 2005. And Susan Kennedy, who's the CEO, she's the big boss of the whole Penguin Putnam group, and Nancy Shepard and Carolyn Colburn, publicity, marketing. We all met in a little room, and I stated my case, and then they kind of told me, you know, son, this is your first book, so you need to listen to a few things here. First of all, only 12% of nonfiction books make a profit. And second of all, two-thirds of all bestsellers are pre-chosen by us, the publisher. We'd like to put our marketing arm behind this, but you're going to have to be fighting terrorism so we can kind of pitch the media. And so, you know, I I conceded at that point, but since I grew up in Africa and I've worked in Pakistan, Afghanistan many years, you never settle a deal without driving a hard bargain on the other side. So I told them, I said, if the hardcover doesn't do very well, then I'd like the subtitle changed um, later on for the paperback. And Julia and our other board, we relentlessly kept pounding away, chipping away, month by month. Well, I was in Pakistan in December of 2006, and Paul Slovak, who is now the new editor on the book, he called me up and said, we, we decided we're going to change the subtitle of the book uh, to One Man's Mission to, to Promote Peace. Um, the, the hardcover actually didn't do that well. They sold probably about 20,000 copies. Well, the paperback came out on March, uh, January 30th this year. And since it came out, it's been on the New York Times bestseller list. It's it's sold about over 700,000 copies now. And it's one man's mission from peace. And um, they're still a little baffled in Manhattan because they were kind of scratching their heads the first month because there was actually no, um, there was only the Christian Science Monitor, but no big city a book editor did a book review on the book. And to be a bestseller, you need New York Times or even the Chronicle here or Boston Globe. Or, you know, get some good book reviews. No national TV and no national NPR. And so Paul's asking me, you know, just what's going on out there? <laughs> and I said, you know, this is about what I think it's, it's about book clubs, women's groups, synagogues, mosques, churches, civic groups, uh, you know, an incredible amount of uh, book clubs here in the Bay Area, universities. And it's about people really yearning for peace and looking for answers for peace. So, And anyways, um, the, it's been really incredible and inspiring to see that people from all walks of life, I really think, can relate to what the book is trying to talk about, is promoting peace one child at a time. And we, we got some news last month that the Pentagon has just purchased 5,000 copies. It's, <laughs> and, um, And it's for counterintelligence training 101 and it's mandatory reading for their first course in counterintelligence training. So this is in Tanzania. I went there when I was three months old in 1958. My father founded the Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center and my mother started a school. And I, I had the, it was a wonderful childhood. I got to go to school with children from two dozen different countries. I got to go to school with Jews and Christians and Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims. And for me, that was the way the world was. Well, finally, it came time to come back to America. I was in high school. And I was really looking forward to coming back to a place where I heard about you know those Fourth of Julys and fireworks and Cracker Jacks and all those good things. Well, my first day back in high school in St. Paul, Minnesota, I got beat up because the kid said, you're not from Africa you know, it was the first time in my life I learned what the word racism meant. It was the first time I learned about prejudice. And it wasn't in Africa. It was here in America. We were completely broke. So I did something that was very unpopular at the time, and uh, especially, you know, around here, four days after high school in June of 75, I joined the U.S. Army. And not only to serve my country, but to get the GI Bill so I could continue my education. You know, it actually was in the army where I saw young men and women from all across America, from the inner city, from farms, from ranches. And it really made me appreciate that the strength in this country is not our commonality, but it's in our great diversity. So I had three sisters. My youngest sister, her name was Krista Eliana. Eliana means gift of God in the Chaga language of Kilimanjaro. And Krista was a very special girl, but it was because she suffered from severe epilepsy. Krista never once complained. I never heard her. We never. I never saw her angry, and she never said a cross word. And it would take Krista an hour or two the night before school. She would do her homework. She would line up her uh, clothes. She would get her lunch bag ready, and it took her a long time. And she was always prepared. I'm kind of the five-minute bed-to-bus kind of guy, you know. <laughs> Well, Krista, in 1992, she saw the baseball movie called Field of Dreams, a very inspiring movie that takes place in the cornfield in Iowa. And uh, she decided for her 23rd birthday that she'd want to go see that place. She was living in Minneapolis. So on July 23rd, she packed her bags, got everything ready to go to the Field of Dreams. But when my mother went to wake up Krista on July 24th, 1992, in the morning, Krista had died in her sleep from a massive seizure. And it was very devastating for all of us. I, I was climbing quite a bit, and I was roaming around quite a bit. And every summer, though, i take about a month, and I'd do something with Krista. We went to the Indy 500, and took her to Disneyland. I took her to Yosemite here, and took her to some of my favorite stomping grounds. And it was very special to do that with my sister Krista. So, um, at the time, I was climbing a lot. I thought, I'm going to pick a big, bad mountain to climb to honor Krista. And I, was, I aspired to take, she had an amber necklace that she had gotten on the Indian Ocean Coast in, in Tanzania. I was going to take that amber necklace and put it on the top of K2 to honor my sister Krista. Well, I went to K2 to climb a mountain. But instead, I found a far greater mountain to climb. Here's K2. Um, world's second-highest mountain, you can put 84 Matterhorns inside a K2 to fill it up. We had, um, we didn't have a lot of money, so we had two season, I don't hope there's no outdoor retailers here, Um, two season family camping tents from Logan, Utah. They're $50 each. (laughs) This tent is a French Legionnaire's tent designed for the Algerian desert in the Sahara. (laughs) This tent came from Wilderness Exchange in Berkeley. It's a 20-year-old North Face prototype tent. It's called the Wind Tunnel. This was a design tent that was about 20 years old when we took it to K2. Here's our motley crew of 12 climbers. The gentleman in the middle without the shirt, he left after one week because he found out there's no alcohol in Pakistan. (laughs) I I don't tell you anymore where he's from, but... Okay. And uh, Doug can... This is a... What is this, Doug? Deadly, Deadly avalanche. <laughs> we call this the mother of all avalanches because it was a year after desert storm. And in the foreground, this is some tents from Tarasa, Spain, and you can see the guys running out in their underwear. Fortunately, nobody was killed in this avalanche. This is the Ark Memorial in honor of Ark who died on K2 in 1953. We climbed a lot at night, and what was, uh, these are the tops of pots and pans that have been carved out in the names of the climbers who've died on K2. Well, we climbed a lot at night, and it's very difficult because you can only see maybe 10 feet in front of you. And as we worked our way up the mountain at night, thousands of feet below, we would hear these plates clanging against the rock. And I really started wondering, is this a good way to honor my sister Krista? And finally, 78 days later, it was time to go home. I was weak. I was exhausted. I was emaciated, but most of all, as I clutched my in my pocket, I felt that amber necklace of of Krista's, and I thought as if I had let her down. Uh, anybody who's read the book, can you remember what the first chapter is called? It, it starts with an F, failure. failure. And um, <clears throat> when that's another thing they really objected to in Manhattan, they said, "Greg, you can't start a book with the word failure." <laughs> and I, at least I won that little argument. I said, you know, our success was originally based in failure. And you know what, all of us make mistakes. And all of us sometimes fail. Sometimes we fail with relationships. Sometimes we fail with investments. Sometimes we fail with jobs. Um, I flunked my first driving test when I was 16, and I totaled the car as I backed in. (laughs) It was at parallel parking. And some, you know, some students don't get into college. And really, when you fail, it's not the end of the road. I just see it as an opportunity and a, and a way to find a different path. And when I come to those moments in life, I often think of the Persian proverb that says, when it is dark, you can see the star. When it is dark, you can see the star. And for those of you who've been there, I failed to get a really good sunset picture on K2. This is actually Orizaba. It's a Mexico in volca- uh, volcano in Mexico. But I love this climbing photo to end the climbing sequence. <laughs> so here's our dirtbag climbers. We got done with K2, and it was time for me to head home to Berkeley, find my way back to Berkeley. Um, I was very weak, and fortunately, we are still alive. That year, five of 12 climbers uh, who, who ascended K2 died during the descent. And I had to walk five days back to the nearest village where I'd catch a jeep to go back to civilization. As I got to Corfe village, a string of, say, a comet tail of kids started grabbing onto me. And as I got near the village, there was a stout, gruff man with a silver beard. He kind of looked at me. And first he said, assalamu alaikum meaning peace be with you. And then he looked at me and he shook his head. And he said, Chizile. Uh, I'm from the Midwest. and. The best translation I can think of is, what the heck. <laughs> you know, um, I was very scruffy. And I hadn't taken a bath in about 83 days. And I looked pretty bad. And he said, son, I'd like to come you to come to our village. But first, you need to take a bath. <laughs> so we went down to the uh, Brauldoo River, very silty, washed up. And then we went to his house for tea. And in that village, I learned many things. One out of three children there dies before the age of one, usually um, dehydration induced or diarrhea-induced dehydration. Many of the young men have left the villages over the last two decades to try and get jobs as dishwashers in the cities or work on road construction crews or as porters for the army or for foreign climbers, and often to get a job they have to pool their resources. They have to sell their goats or sell their land um, to uh, bribe somebody, but who's left behind? It's the women. And the women tell me now that their workload has doubled over the last two decades. I walked into Corfe, and this is actually the first picture I took. I was a stranger, and they were a stranger to me. And we had yet to have three cups of tea with each other. First cup, you're a stranger. Second cup, a friend. And third cup, you become family, but the process takes many years. Here in America, we have two-minute football drills and. Uh, Six-second sound bites and 30-minute power lunches. But over there, it takes three cups of tea, and really, it's about relationships. So I asked about a school, and I wanted to see. I noticed the kids disappeared, and I asked about a school, and they were very embarrassed, reluctant. But finally, they took me behind the village. I saw 84 children sitting in the dirt during their school lessons. There was five girls, 79 boys, and most of the kids were riding with sticks in the sand. Now, I grew up in Africa, so I, I've seen a lot of poverty. But when I saw those kids, and a, a young girl named Chocho came up to me and said, it's really getting cold here. It was a cold autumn day. She said, could you help us build a school? I made her a very rash promise. I said, I promise I'll build a school for you. So I came back to America. I was living in the Bay Area. I was, I was very broke after K-2. I had to raise $12,000. And, you know, I didn't know, have a clue how to raise money like that. So I went to the local library. Any librarians here? We're There's one. And <laughs> let's all give them a big hand. <laughs> and to the, so I went to the library, this thing called a resource librarian. And I talked to her, and she said, well, let me help you. We looked up the name of 580 uh, celebrities and movie stars and sports heroes. And over three months, I, ha- I didn't know how to use a computer, so I hand-typed. 580 letters, and I wrote, "Dear Michael Jordan, dear Sylvester Stallone," and, and um, it, it, it was a kind of a tedious process. Well, guess what happened? Nothing happened. Then at Christmas time, I got one check back from Tom Brokow, the newscaster, for $100. And then um, I sold my climbing gear. Then I sold my car. I had a big old Buick I inherited from my grandfather, and I sold that for $500 in a little kind of seedy area in Oakland, for $500. And by the springtime, I'd only raised about $2,400. I was getting a little frustrated. My mother, who is a principal at Westside Elementary School, she in in River Falls, Wisconsin. she invited me to come and talk to the kids. When I got ready to leave, a fourth grader named Jeffrey came up to me, and he looked me deadpan in the eye. And he said, I have a piggy bank at home. I'm going to help you raise money for that school in Pakistan. Well, I didn't think anything of it, and six weeks later, Westside School raised 62,340 pennies. And when you think about it, it wasn't the celebrities or the movie stars or the sports heroes or the philanthropic type of people. It was children in all their innocence and purity reaching out to children halfway around the world to help them build a school. You know, what can you buy with a penny in the Bay Area? Probably nothing, maybe, I don't know, I think in Montana we could buy half a Tootsie Roll with a penny. But here, you can really buy nothing. But in Afghanistan and in Pakistan and in Africa, with a penny, you can buy a pencil. It's not that a pencil soul is important, but what education does is it gives a child hope. You know, if you fight terrorism, it's based in fear. But if you promote peace, it's based in hope. And the real enemy is ignorance. It's ignorance that breeds hatred whether it's here in America or in Afghanistan or in Pakistan or in Africa. And I think the way to overcome that is through education and also about having courage and compassion. Instead of building walls, we need, we need to build bridges of peace and have the courage to do that. Um, so I went back to Pakistan in '94, brought the school supplies, went up the Karakoram Highway, and finally got up to Corfe. And again Haji Ali was there to greet me. First he said Aslam Lakum and then he looked at me and again he shook his head. He said, Cheesele, what the heck? Because <laughs> not only had it come back, but I brought the school supplies. But he said, you know, son, you've made two big mistakes. First of all, we don't start building in the mountains before winter time. And number two, if you really want to build a school, we're gonna have to build a bridge first. And I hadn't really thought about that. So I had to come back to America. I had to raise ten thousand more dollars. Well, then um, came along, I got back from Pakistan and the bridge got built, but no school yet. I was 38 years old, diehard bachelor, and I was, all I could think about was getting that school built in Pakistan. And I went to a fundraising dinner at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco where my hero, Sir Edmund Hillary, was speaking. I was getting kind of late, and I noticed people were nodding off, and um, he was going on and on about the Queen's coronation. And um, so I went to the back to get some fresh air. And there was a beautiful woman in the back wearing a dress and black combat boots. And her name was Tara Bishop. We started talking. And six days later, we went to the Oakland Courthouse and got married. And now we're living happily ever after in Montana. <laughs> uh, I also, um, a guy named Keith was from Pakistan, he ran a company called Laser Image. It's in, in Shattuck and Berkeley. He taught me how to use a computer. And then Tara, after watching me for several days, one day she said, uh, you know, I was writing these fundraising letters, and I, I wrote them all out. I learned how to use a computer, but Tara said, let me show you about something. It's called cut and paste. <laughs> so with Tara now, we could start writing hundreds of fundraising letters. Pretty cool. And in Pakistan, I learned how to use the local laptops. Uh, See the slate board there? The whole village participated in building the school. It was a very joyous time. This is uh, 18 miles from, um, on that bridge, I didn't mention that, but there are five 800-pound steel cables that they carried on a spool 18 miles up the village. Eight men would put a beam and this 800-pound steel with a spool, and they carried up to the village. And this is where they're carrying the trusses and beams and struts for the roof, 18 miles from the village. What is amazing here, this man is Sher Taki. He's the head imam for the village. I don't know if there's any clergy or rabbis or imams here, but in their culture, they're not supposed to do manual community labor. They're supposed to be the spiritual advisor and read the Holy Quran and give give advice. Well, not only did Sher Taki come back, but he carried the first load back to the village symbolizing his advocacy for education. Well, here you get to meet Haji Ali in the back there with a silver beard. And you see, after three years, we hadn't gotten very far. And the problem, it wasn't them. The problem was me. I was doing something that we call micromanagement. I had my plumb line and receipts, and I was determined I'm going to make this school get built without losing $1. Well, one day, Haji Ali, the village chief, he came up to me and he sat me down he said, son, we're grateful for your help, but you need to do one thing. You need to sit down and be quiet and let us do the work. And he took my receipts and records and plumb line, and he locked them up in his little earthen locker. And he came back and he said, you know, his prayer beads in there and all his, his uh, British musket gun. So it's on a bipod, and when you fire it, you'll know, get blast in your face. And, <laughs> and he, he uh, came back and said, there, everything will be just fine. Don't you worry. Inshallah, I mean, Allah willing. Well, of course, I was horrified. And six weeks later, the school got built. (laughs) And um, it was an important lesson I to let go, let the communities be empowered, and let them do their work in their entirety. So it came time to open the school. Kids came from all around, and Julia came all the way here from America. And around their neck, you can see this colorful lapel that they have. It's called a Tomar. It means badge of courage. it's put around a newborn when they're first born to ward away the evil spirits. And uh, so the kids put a Tomar around their neck. And Julie, you want to stand up and model this? This is a Tomar. And it means badge of courage. Well, you can see their joy at being able to go to school. But also look at Sekinder on your right. He has orange hair. He has... It's not because he's dyed his hair, it's because he has Kwashakar's disease. He's starving from protein malnutrition. If you look at Fatima on his right, you can see lice in her hair. But despite those maladies, you can also see their joy at being able to go to school. So it came, in 96, I decided that I would dedicate my life to promoting literacy and building schools in that part of the world. And I had gotten married and had a baby on the way, and um, if, if you want to read the book, there's an eight-day kidnapping when I go into Waziristan, and many things happen. But another thing that happened in '96 is I had my first fatwa issued against me. I've had two fatwas issued against me. Now a fatwa can mean many things. It's not just a Salman Rushdie death decree, but a fatwa can prohibit women from going down to Mission Street Bazaar, and going shopping. A fatwa could mean you can't watch television, or fatwa can mean many things. And in my case, the fatwa was banishing me from the country because I was helping put girls in school. Well, I sought out the advice of Saeed Abbas Rizvi, who's the head Shiite imam in northern Pakistan. Before you pass judgment on him, he's the good guy. And um, he's a very noble, compassionate, visionary man. So Saeed Abbas said, well, let me find out. So he, he wrote a letter to the Council of Ayatollahs in Khomiran to seek clarification just what to do with this crazy American in their midst who's trying to put girls in school. And several months later, I was summoned into the inner sanctum of the Imam Barra Mosque in Skardu. And I was very, you know, I was, it was very intimidating. There's eight uh, imams with their black turbans on. And, and I thought, you know, this is it. I'm going to get booted out of the country. But instead, Said Abbas brought me a red velvet box. And he opened it. And in that box was a letter in the ornate Farsi, or the Persian script, and it read, Dear compassion of the poor, we have reviewed your case, and in our Holy Quran, education is encouraged for all children. And furthermore, the, the first word in the Holy Quran, it means read, and it implores in the first beginning of the Quran, implores all children or all, all people to have knowledge and, and seek knowledge. Well, um, with that letter, we started getting dozens and dozens of proposals, especially for girls' schools. You know, why is girls' education so important? I've even gone to the extent now where I say, you can drop bombs, you can build roads, or you can put in electricity, but until the girls are educated, a society won't change. Several global studies show that if you educate a girl to at least a fifth grade level, it does three important things. One, reduce infant mortality. Number two, reduce the population explosion. And number three, improve the quality of health and of life itself. If you're interested, um, you can go in the library here. Look up a guy named Amartya Sen. He wrote a book called Development as Freedom. It's a very fat, you know, in-depth book, but it talks all about that. Mehbu Pak, a Pakistani economist in the 60s, he had the very foresight to see that, um, that girls' education would be a, a big pros- process to really bring about stabilization of the population, he, book, he wrote a book called The Poverty Curtain, and then more recently, Jeffrey Sachs, who wrote uh, The End of Poverty. In Bangladesh, which is a great example, in, uh, about 35 years ago, they introduced a massive campaign to get all women literate in the country. Well, also the boys. And um, The literacy rate in Bangladesh in the early 70s was about 22%. Today, it's more than 75%. And if you look at a demographic curve, which is a population indice, you can see that the population is just starting to reach an apex right now in Bangladesh. They're way ahead of India and Pakistan and Afghanistan as far as female literacy. It's had a profound, it's a really impact on on the population to to stabilize the population. Also, um, excuse me. Um, You know, having the hardcover saying, fighting terrorism with education, I have also learned um, from talking with Islamic scholars. There's an important message in the Quran. It's very implicitly stated and spelled out in the Holy Quran that when a young man goes on jihad, and a jihad is actually a quest, and most often it's a noble quest. It's a spiritual endeavor or a quest to seek knowledge or the jihad could also mean if, if a guy's going into a jihadi group. But before a young man goes on jihad, he has to get permission and blessings of his mother first. And if he doesn't do that, it's very shameful or disgraceful. And um, after 9-11, the Taliban had a high desertion rate. Um, they were trying to go around getting recruits to, to fight against the eminent U.S. intervention and in the coalition. And they mainly went into large swaths of illiterate, impoverished society because educated women were refusing to allow their son to join the Taliban. Even in our own backyard, in America, often you have like a less educated single mother, parent who's in a difficult position. If, if she, the higher education a, a woman has, the more likely her son is, is to go on with education or get a job rather than getting into violence or into drugs, and certainly she won't as condone her son getting into a gang or into drugs. I've often sometimes been, not often, sometimes I've been criticized for that because some people say, well, all the 9-11 hijackers were educated. In fact, some of them even had university degrees. And that certainly is true. But nobody bothered to check their mothers. Nearly all their mothers were illiterate. And I doubt that they talked to their mothers to go to New York and commit the atrocity that happened on 9-11. So first, I've got some really exciting news And then I have to unfortunately talk to you about some negative news. I've been in perhaps about 120 cities over the last 14 months, and I've talked to maybe 50,000 people. And I ask this question most places I go, and I'm going to ask you today, how many of you are aware of the fact that in Afghanistan today, there are 5.2 million children going to school, and 1.8 million of those are female, and in 2000, which was the Taliban heyday, there was only 800,000 kids in school. How many of you know that fact? One, two. Uh, you, you <laughs> one. Anybody? Okay, one person. So that makes my total now that I've counted about 50,000 people, 21 people in America, and to me, that's the single most incredible, inspiring news to come out of that country. That alone is justification for everything that has happened there, the sacrifice, the cost and the investment in that country, and nobody in America is aware of that. The media, the government, the people, and to me, that news should be broadcast from every mountaintop in this country. And in this little publication called Hope, we write about that. So if there's even if you can do anything for us, go and tell people that there's some really good things happening and it's related to education and that the number of kids in Afghanistan now has gone up sixfold since 2000. Unfortunately, there's other forces at work. In the last year, the Taliban have bombed or destroyed more than 400 mostly girls schools. And and it's it's a travesty. What is sometimes interesting amazing though is that if you go back to these schools, they've been written off the government records, they're not getting any more funding, but some kids are still trying to go to school in these villages. And I think that we owe it to those brave children and to their communities and those countries that we should do everything we can to help those kids continue school and you know, quit, you know don't worry every day about the IED counts and the schools that have been bombed, but worry about those brave children who are still trying to go to school. This is Hushe School. We opened up in 1998, there's 12 girls in the front row. I asked them to increase the number of girls by 10% a year. They don't know how to do their math there. So this is what happened one year later. (laughs) Now there's two rows of girls going to school in Houshey. This is on the far left in the back, the silver beard, is a man named Aslam. He's the first man to get an education in in Houshey. And his story is in the book. An incredible story about how he left his village and his father gave him a bag of shekels and booted him across the river and said, don't come back until you get your education. Basically, that's what he did. He had these um, yak boots on, and he walked into this kind of more urban area, and everybody's <laughs> looking at him. And if you ask most men there in the back, what's the most proudest moment in your life? Most of the men will say, the birth of my firstborn son, but not Aslam on the far left. Assam will tell you, the proudest moment in my life is to see my two daughters going to school in Hushe village. And the woman on the extreme far right, her name is Shaquila. Shaquila is the first girl to get an education in that whole valley of about 4,000 people. Shaquila first started writing with sticks in the sand. Today she's in her second year of medical school in Lahore in Pakistan. She's scoring in the 90s. She, um, her father told her, you should not become a doctor, it's really messy. You've got to become a teacher, but she's determined to become a physician and go back to her village and become a physician to help her community. And it's an incredible story of how she's, like her father, has persevered. This is Aziza, who's from Charperson Valley. It's on the Afghan border. It's a valley of about 4,000 people. Aziza was the first girl to get an education in her village. And even though the communities there are somewhat proactive about girls' education, It was difficult for Aziza when she first went to school. The boys used to throw pebbles at her when she came to school. Some of the, and later on, a couple teachers did not want to teach her because she was female. And then when she got to high school, some of the boys stole her notebooks because they didn't want her to graduate. Well, guess what, Aziza graduated. And Aziza, there's no medicine, no clinic, no hospital here. Before Aziza started working in 2000 in Charleston Valley, Five to 20 women died in childbirth every year in Charperson Valley. So Aziza went to two years of training. cost us about $800. She came back. Her pays just over a dollar per day. Not one woman has died in Charperson Valley since Aziza's come back and, and is working there. And now I'm going to jump forward a little bit. Um, one, we get hundreds of letters in our office and also emails. And some of the most, say, powerful or poignant emails are those from our armed forces serving in Afghanistan and sometimes Iraq. And recently, I got an email from a colonel. I'll just call his name. His first name is Chris. And he's the commander of the Sabre Force. It's called FOB, Forward Operating Base, in Nare province. In Af- it's in Kunar, Nuristan province in eastern Afghanistan. One of the most difficult, dangerous areas to serve. And he, he wrote to me, you know, first as a, fa- as a commander but also as a father and, and a husband, and he told me a little bit about how difficult it was. And then he said, you know, we're, we're, he had all his guys read Three Cups of Tea, and he said, you know, really, without education, whatever, whatever we do here is in vain. He said, it's education, and I'll quote him, education is what we determine if these people, if the young men and women become patriotic or literate patriots or illiterate terrorists. And he said the stakes could not be higher, the stakes could not be higher. And this comes from a U.S. military commander in Afghanistan. Now, I'm just going to jump across the border and tell you why the stakes not could be higher in all this part of the world. Um, this is Pakistan in 2005. There was a massive earthquake. Seventy-four thousand people were killed. Eighteen thousand of those were kids going to school. Most of the kids who died were younger and they're female because they didn't have desks. So when the walls started shaking and the roof came down, the kids without desks perished. There was over 9,000 schools destroyed or cracked or rendered unusable. Half a million kids displaced out of school. And in in, uh, Urdu, earthquake is Zalzala, but they called it the Koyomat, or Koyomat, which means the apocalypse. At first, there was a very heroic effort. The international community did help to some degree, although not that much. After Katrina, for example, the Red Cross got $2 billion for help. After the tsunami, $800 million. For the Pakistan earthquake, the Red Cross received $6 million. And the U.S. did send in 12 or 2 dozen C-47 Chinook helicopters. They conducted the greatest helicopter airlift in the history of mankind. They moved about 20,000 tons up into the mountains to keep about half a million people alive through the wintertime, and it was a very heroic effort. And for that, the people were grateful. But after a year, the aid has dropped about 70%. And in the wake of that void, many jihadi or U.S.-labeled terrorist organizations have set up refugee camps. This is the Jamaat Islamiyat camp. This is about four miles north of Musafarabad in Neelam Valley in... Azad, Kashmir, Pakistan. And in that camp, there are many kids who were previously going to school. Now they have no school. And the cost to help them go to school would be about $1 per month per child. A fifth grader, $20 a year, a first grader, 5 bucks a year. What's happened is they get their food here in the mess tent on the right in the back. And on the left of that is an extremist madrasa where the kids are getting indoctrinated into a very violent type of Islam. And because the lack of the international community to help those kids go on in school, it's become this. um, another camp two miles from here is the El Rashid Trust. It's run by Dr. Aziz Amir, who was Osama bin Laden's personal previous physician. He's a British trained orthopedic surgeon. He spent two years in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. He's running one of the largest medical camps in Musafrabad. And just down the street from that, the U.S. 212 mass unit. Now, they're all trying to help, but uh, what's going on in these camps, they have a duplicit agenda, and their agenda is to get the people dependent and um, indoctrinate them very violent type of Islam. Unfortunately, we're a, we're a registered 501 c three nonprofit in the States. If we even go into the camps or even talk with anybody there, we'd be affiliating with a terrorist organization, and we'd be shut down overnight by the IRS. So what's happened is that we've created a viral incubator for terrorism here in Af- Pakistan, which is similar to what happened in Afghanistan in 1989. And I show this picture on Capitol Hill. They told me this is a classified photo. You shouldn't show this in public. And I just took this, I just took this beside the road in Moussafrabad. and, and uh, you know, just to I think this is news that should be broadcast all over that the international community the Pakistan government, nobody cares about the education of those children. We're creating, you know, $1 per month per child. Instead, we'll be sending in, 800, you know, $920,000 Tomahawk cruise missiles in the next decade. Um, and when, when with the cost of one Tomahawk cruise missile, we could build 50 schools and over a generation educate 10,000 children. Do you think that photo should be classified? Get in, get in trouble? <laughs> okay. This is a uh, we we started putting up some schools because there wasn't really any schools getting put up there. So this is in Nosari village, in the end of Needham Valley. Uh, Twenty four young girls died in the rubble in the earthquake in Needham Valley, and this is Patika Girls High School. Seven of the bodies were unclaimed. There were 104 girls, I think, who died there during the earthquake. And these um, bodies that weren't claimed mostly was because their parents had been killed in the earthquake. So when we built the veranda for the school, they wanted to build a memorial around the graves of those children so that they could uh, remember that the, the loss of life had not gone in vain for the for the girls in, in uh, Patika Girls High School. This is uh, Patika Girls High School. And we're also running some other schools, we don't have the, all the resources to put in buildings. This is in Maidan Shah in Afghanistan. This is a, a ninth grade class. They're going to s- school in a Russian Soviet, uh, you know, old armored personnel carrier, get APC. And you want to take a look inside. There's 12 ninth graders going to school learning English. The younger boys, they're going to school in a steel truck container that was used to bring over U.S. military supplies. This is a 82nd graders going to school in a truck container. And where do you think the girls are? They're outdoors going to school in the dirt with one mat, one blackboard that keeps blowing down and they keep picking it up in the wind, and one teacher. And to me, the courage and the hope that resonates when I see those kids, some of, some of these uh, Uh, women, young women here walk maybe one or one-half hours to get to school. I think that, you know, it's time that we really need to help support them and that they have the the opportunity and the privilege to all go to school. So I'm I'm sometimes, people ask our organization, and uh, even the board has pondered this a little bit sometimes, Um, I say that, you know, half of our staff is illiterate. I said, why do you hire illiterate people to work with an organization promoting literacy? Well, what it is is these men and some women here, they've worked for us for a long, long time. They're willing to risk their lives. They work for two or three years in a row without a day off. They're willing to go in some of the most difficult, remote, or dangerous areas to risk their lives many year after year just to get one girl in school. And I call this the most, um, say, overachieving, underqualified staff on the planet. <laughs> and you know, some people ask me, well, isn't it difficult or dangerous over there? And what's the most difficult part about your job? And what is really the most difficult part about my job is that, as the back of the book says, I'm an Indiana Jones. But you know, I'm not an Indiana Jones, or Rambo, fighting terrorism in the Taliban's backyard. I'm a father. I'm a husband. And I'm, I'm a son. Like all, I'm just like all of you. I, I, I struggle sometimes uh, in daily life. But I'm also very passionate about education. And I know that I, I couldn't do this without the great love of my wife Tara and my two children who put up with me being gone. Uh, we've been married 12 month no 12 years. <laughs> <coughs> She's a, she usually doesn't count, so i <laughs> to come here. Um, I've been gone about 65 months of my marriage, and I didn't get to see my kids first learn how to tie their shoes. I didn't get to see my daughter when she first learned how to read a bici- ride a bicycle. I did get to see Kyber learn how to ride a bicycle the first time. And that, those are, as many of you parents know, those are life's most precious events when your children go through that. But I have that incredible support not only from that, but from wonderful communities, all people like you. We have, you know, I. I, we could never thank all the communities for helping with the children overseas um, who are able to cont- uh, reach their um, goals through. Um, my wife said I'm going to preach now. <laughs> okay. Um, so, anyways, thank you. Every, um, okay, let's keep on going here. And uh, there's a. Uh, oh. And I wake up at lot of night, and my wife Tara tells me to go back to sleep, but I, I can't go to sleep because I see a village like Pacora, and then you tinker with it, and it turns into Guanajuato, Mexico, and then you do a little more masala, and it turns into Rumchi, China. And you wonder where we're all headed. You know, I really don't know the answer, but one thing I do know is that if you listen to the people, what they want most of all is education for all their children. And I ask many women now, when I'm overseas. I ask the women, you know, I'm here as your servant. I'd like to help you. What do you want? And you'd think, you know, most women would tell you, I want a good husband, or I want to become affluent, or I want wealth or prosperity. But what most women tell me there is that we don't want our babies to die. And that's what we'd like help with. And how do you answer that question? I think it comes through educating the girls and and female literacy. Thanks, Doug. This is a Dok Luna School. This is a Jafarabad Girls School and Conde School. Um, my daughter, um, she occasionally, Amira, there. She looks at these photos, and a couple of years ago, she said, "Daddy, you don't have any playgrounds in your schools." <laughs> and so we we busily went around last year, and we've got now playgrounds in all schools, and skipping ropes, and. Um, It's been a really great blessing to see because play, you know, is an important part of the learning process and and socializing. So thanks, Amira. (laughs) This is in LaLander School. It's in the Charasiab Valley, south of Kabul. Um, I won't give too much detail. The story is in um, Karen chronicled it in, in the tab that you have there. Is it called a tab? Okay, tab. And the Lander School, uh, there are some Taliban around there, and they started threatening some of the kids there. This summer, they did attack the school. Fifteen Taliban came and attacked the school. They took it over, and then they said that if anybody tried to come to school, they would kill those people. Well, the headmaster, he was not just about to give up, so he pedaled his little bicycle at night about 30 miles to the Commandant, who's the militia leader in Char Valley. His name is Commandant Fahim. Now, Fahim has two daughters going to school, not, not in this one, but another school. He got very upset, so he came in with about 120 of his militia. He uh, did kill one Taliban, and he, killed, he wounded another one who died later, and he arrested the 12 dozen other Taliban, and he found out from them that they had gotten two lakh Afghan, which is 200,000 Afghan, it's about $3,100 to attack and shut down the school. They had gotten that money from the mullah in the village. So they went to the mullah's house, they arrested the mullah, and now the mullah and the Taliban are are awaiting trial in jail in Kabul, and they're probably going to get about six or eight years. What's really incredible is that two days later, they did open up the school. They even had another inauguration for the school because they said, we want our kids to go to school. There are about 18 kids, displaced school. She's got the facts. (laughs) There are 18 girls who um, are not going to school in there. We, We set up a, it's called a displaced girls' school. But the rest of the kids have come back here. And I think that's really, you know, if we could give all those children, the support that they deserve to continue education, I, I really think that we, that things could really uh, be, make a difference. This is a uh, Chunda School. This is in Babutengi. It's in a remote area in North Afghanistan. The first day of school, there were a registration day and these kids came to register for school and I noticed as they started walking. I started looking down at their Chinese rubber boots and their flip flops, and some of them were barefoot. And I kept looking down at the ground, and finally I saw those little impressions of their boot prints and, and footprints. And then I thought back to 1969 when Neil Armstrong first stepped on the moon. And he said, one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. And I thought, you know, that's one tiny little print for each brave young girl walking in the dirt. Years later, she'll be um, dozens of other girls will be behind her and eventually hundreds of girls. And then the value of education will be in the community and it will be one giant leap for their community. It really was the peaks that first brought me there, but the people that bring me back and back again. When I got to Corfe in 2001 in the spring, Haji Ali was very sad because his dear wife, Sakina, of over 55 years had passed away. And so we, at first we always embrace each other, and then there's dust flying around and tears in our eyes. And then we often go over to the local graveyard. So as we walked to the graveyard, we saw Sakina buried in the ground in a box facing the west towards the sunset. And Haji Ali, in a rare moment of sentiment, he said, without her, I'm nothing. And then he said something that I would never forget. He said, very soon you're going to be standing here and I'm going to be in the ground. And he kind of chuckled. And I didn't think that was very funny because I lost my father in his 40s from cancer in 1981. And my sister Krista, and you know, all of us have lost somebody close to us. And you never get over that, that loss. And, he, and when he, uh, we were looking down at the ground, he said, when that moment happens, when I'm going to, soon I'll be, did I say that already? Soon I'll be in the ground. And he kind of chuckled. And he said, when that moment happens, when you come to see me in the ground, you're going to be very sad. But I want you to do one thing. I want you to listen to the wind. Listen to the wind. And I got to back to Corfu. It was in October 2001. I was in Pakistan for about two and a half months, around that very tumultuous period called 9-11. And after 9-11, the U.S. State Department and the Embassy, they wanted to, to evacuate all U.S. citizens out of Pakistan because they said it's dangerous here. But I had a lot of work to get done. So finally, I called my wife, Tara, and I asked her, what should I do? And she said, you know, stay there with the people you love. Finish up your work because the people there love you, and, and you need to be over there right now. And when I was in Pakistan after 9-11, everywhere I went, I was touched by outpouring of hospitality and empathy. I remember a very poor elderly widow named Hawa who brought me five precious eggs and pushed them in my palm. And she said, please bring these back to the widows in New York who are suffering. I wanted, this is all I have to share with them. I was invited for prayers of peace in the mosques. And everywhere I went, people apologized to me for what had happened in New York City, even though they didn't have anything to do with it. And then finally, it came time. I went back to Corfe, And when I got to Corfe, Haji Ali had passed away. And I very painfully walked over to his grave. And I stood there, looking at his box in the ground. And I thought, how can I go on? This man had become my father, my mentor, my guide. And you know he told me to um, sit down and be quiet. And he told me to take a bath and so many things. (laughs) And then I remembered what he said. He said to listen to the wind. And I listened to the wind. And in the wind, I heard the voices of the children in the school. And I realized that his legacy and his vision for education had come true. And I also realized that after a decade, I had finally come full circle. And I hadn't found the field of dreams in a cornfield in Darzo, Iowa. And I hadn't found the field of dreams in a top of a big bad mountain called K2. But I had found the field of dreams in a little dusty field in a place called Corfe in Pakistan. So Amira, you want to come up here? I see a young boy. etching letters in the sand. In this land of ancient scars, a promise still remains. When darkness comes, you can see the stars. Three cups of tea, first cup, you're a stranger. second cup of friends, by the third your family. How long to trust a stranger? How long to share three cups of tea?